You're listening to the Co-Main Event Podcast. And now your hosts, Ben Folks and Chad Dundas. That's right. You're listening to another episode of the Co-Main Event Mixed Martial Arts Podcast. I'm your co-host from BleacherReport.com, Chad Dundas, and joining me as always from MMA Junkie and USA Today, it's your friend and mine, Mr. Ben Folks. Ben, it's the Christmas episode of the Co-Main Event Podcast. In that we are recording it the day after Christmas. Basically the Christmas special. Okay. We're going to sing some carols. Uh... I assume we will all learn a valuable lesson. At the end, maybe. A moral? De- definitely the, not right now. By the time this is all over? How'd it go up at uh, Casa de Folks? I saw, I saw some, uh, some social media posts from your wife saying that she had contracted a stomach virus uh, for Christmas, but I didn't know if it was a legitimate stomach virus or if it was the 24-hour brown bottle stomach virus. You know, that just says something about you, that, that that's what you assume. Maybe that's a page out of Chad Dundas's life, that that's what's going on over here. But no, she had a legitimate stomach virus, struck her down on Christmas Eve, uh, which, unfortunate for her. But you know what? What actually, I was amazed that after all that time I spent trying to prepare my daughter for not getting the Disney princess dress she wanted, Yeah, I managed to find one that was only two sizes too big and prayed that that would go over well. And she did not even seem to notice that it is made for a, a child much larger than her. I buy that. I mean, she didn't check the tag and was like, hold on, this is for a five-year-old. This is 5T. I'm, uh... <laughs> you know, I did have to point out that maybe we shouldn't wear that one outside since it will drag through the snow and the mud. Uh, but other than that, man, things went pretty well. And I come over here after all your talk about how you, you know, your daughter wanted a horse and you were going to break her heart. And then I see, lo and behold, there is technically a horse here. Technically. It- there is, you want to know the specs? That is an R-Generation brand 20-inch plastic horse. Majestic uh, looking, I believe, though. I believe that's a Palomino. Looks like a noble creature. Uh, currently, I don't know if you've noticed, but there is a what I believe is a leopard beanie baby riding it. Yeah, it's a leopard. Uh, fits pretty nicely on the saddle there. Um, so there's two smaller horses there on the coffee table, which just gives you a brief view into the horsey Christmas that my daughter had. Pretty much everyone she knows purchased her a horse of some variety. So she couldn't get like an actual live horse. We'll just make up for it with sheer volume of, you know, kind of sad fake horses. Yeah, for now. Okay. For now. Until we either grow out of the horse phase or we have to move to a farm. Wow. One of the one of those two things will happen, I assume. I'm rooting for one more than the other, I'm going to tell you right now. You want us to move to a farm so you can come... Record the podcast and in like have a country breakfast like Matt Hughes. I, there's nothing about this that doesn't sound awesome. We got music again this week uh, from friend of the podcast, the Fifth Element, the music producer from Fort Worth, Texas. Thanks to him for providing us uh, some tunes for the show today. If you like them, you can check them out at Facebook.com/slash The Fifth Element on Twitter at The Fifth Element or SoundCloud.com/slash The Fifth Element Official. Three rounds, as usual, this week in the Co-Main Event Podcast. In round number one, Ronda Rousey won't be speaking to the media leading up to UFC 207, so naturally, she's been pulled from the fight card and rebooked into a rematch with Nate Diaz in a few weeks. And in round number two, yeah, speaking of not talking to the media, you know who probably should have taken their keep-a-secret pills before this event? 
that would be Cain Velasquez. And in round number three, wait, they're still going to let Cody Garbrandt fight Dominic Cruz? After the last time they let those two guys go on TV together? Whew. All that plus just saying stuff and are you fucking kidding me? But first, like we always do about this time, let's do a little bit of listener mail. Listener mail. The first piece of listener mail this co- this week comes to us from Devin Scott. He writes, I'm taking my brother to UFC 209 in March of next year. Even though he is a casual fan, he's still interested to watch the headliners to be determined versus to be announced. How likely is it that the headlining bout is going to be for an interim belt? And how do I explain this new belt system to a casual fan? I was thinking of comparing them to a promise ring you give a high, give your high school sweetheart as they are both... Uh, as they both bear the same level of commitment, a la Jose Aldo, Max Holloway. But please go on. Your guidance is appreciated. Uh, That's actually a more apt analogy, the, the promise ring thing, than I could have ever come up with. Yeah, that's, that's, that's a pretty good one. Yeah. I mean, it stands for something that basically you intend to have happen later. Because, and, and it, it, physically, you know, it's, it's a, some kind of a symbol to everybody else. Uh, not really the symbol, but it does provide some kind of like physical reminder of, hey, here's a, here's something about the future that we have decided in metal form. Yeah. Uh, now, see, when it comes to, to bringing a casual fan to the UFC event, Devin Scott, I would take the approach of just kind of nervously standing there and seeing what kind of questions he asks. I mean, I, you know, sort of like uh, if you're bringing a, bringing a person into your home and, and letting them see all the accoutrement of your cult and just sort of hoping that they don't like, I'm not going to ask, I'm not going to introduce them to the fact that I have this ceremonial dagger on this altar in my bedroom unless they ask about it. Yeah. I would take the same approach when, to like the interim title. Yeah. Then you're like, oh, that like, well, I just thought like later we would both slice our hands open and exchange blood. Become blood brothers. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so you do the same thing with interim titles, kind of stay quiet about it until he asks, why are there seven lightweight champions or whatever? And then you can be like, well, everyone gets a belt in the UFC. (laughs) Once you come into Dana's flock, you are awarded a belt. Yeah. Well, and as far as the question of how likely is it that the headlining bout is going to be for an interim belt? Last I heard one of the prevailing rumors was that, you know, we were looking at a, a, interim lightweight title fight there between uh, Nermi and T-Ferg, which would be a crackerjack of a fight. Yes. The kind of fight you don't need an interim belt to sell me, at least. Uh, and the kind of fight that it almost seems like you add some level of necessary mockery to it when you do slap a, an interim lightweight title fight on it. But I, I maybe then I would just focus on selling your brother on, hey, don't worry about the hardware let me just tell you about how awesome these two dudes are in, in different ways. Yeah. Uh, and the other, we had Alistair Overeem versus Mark Hunt floating Maybe. for this event uh, as if it were a done deal. And, and if Mark Hunt can get the contract stipulations he wants. Right. Now it seems like a little bit more murky whether or not that one uh, is actually going to happen. Uh, but this one, UFC 209, and I know that there's been, there's been some very cutesy speculation that Nick Diaz would wind up with a comeback fight of sorts on this event because obviously... UFC 209, which seems like kind of just cutesy slash dumb enough that it seems like a good idea. Like you could actually see the UFC doing that, putting Nick Diaz on uh, UFC 209. Uh, but this one goes down 
uh, in Brooklyn, right? This one, this one's at the Nets Arena there. Uh, oh wait, no, this one is in. Uh, this is the one at the T-Mobile Arena in Las Vegas. Never mind. I was gonna say you're going to the Barclays Center in Brooklyn. You're probably gonna have a good time anyway. But well, it was because that. they had a, a UFC scheduled for oh, that's Anaheim. Right. This one was supposed to go down in Brooklyn at some point, right? Yeah, and then they switched it. Yeah, so, still, man, T-Mobile Arena, Las Vegas, right? Granddaddy of them all. Take a, you're taking the casual fan. It seems like you'll end up having a good time. I mean, here's the thing. This is going to come down to uh, to how Devin Scott and his brother play this. Like, if you want to have a good time at a UFC event and you're taking your brother who's not necessarily a hardcore fan, you'll you'll end up having a good time as long as you're open to that. Yeah. As long as you don't put all your bags, all your eggs in the basket of we need to see this this specific main event. And if it falls apart, life will be ruined. Well, and it's been my experience that February is a fine time to visit Las Vegas, especially if you come from a climate such as ours. Sure, yeah, solid point. You walk outside there and you realize, wait a minute, I can just stroll around here in my shirt sleeves, um, not what you're used to at home. Then, plus you're in Vegas, so when you show up for the prelims, man, you walk in with your drink in the big plastic cup the shape of an Eiffel Tower, Yeah. and not only are they not going to make you throw it out before you go in the arena, they'll just, at most, ask you to put it like in one of their own plastic cups. Yeah. So you, there's a lot of ways for you to have a good time here. You know what? I, the more we talk ourselves into this, I feel like taking a casual fan to a UFC event might be the way to go. Like, l- fewer expectations... Uh, when Mark Hunt drops out and they have to get Baruto at the last minute, he he's going to be fine with that. He's not even going to know who either of those guys are. So I don't know. This this seems like the a best case scenario yeah. to me, frankly. Next question this week uh comes from Austin Shippy. He writes, "WT Fudge, you guys." Dillashaw, number one, I believe he's referring to the UFC official rankings, uh, is set to tussle with Lineker, number two. And after some masturbatory UFC on UFC advertising, Cruz, the champion, is said to fight Garbrandt, number five. I'm glad we're going with just zero first names for the belt. <laughs> God damn it. Oh, wait. A couple weeks later on free and argue, a free and arguably better card, Rivera, number four, will fight Caraway, number six. Are you fucking kidding me? Within three weeks, six of the UFC's top 135 pounders will fight. Uh, but it's the number five ranked guy that gets the nod. Maybe I'll... All I need for that uh, promotion at work is a shitty neck tattoo. Oh. Uh, oh, wow. So taking some shots at the matchmaking here. Uh, really, I wanted to include this question because we wanted to talk about uh, Tilly Dills. Your boy Tilly Dills. Uh, TJ Dillashaw taking on John Lineker uh, at the upcoming UFC event, which uh, is a fight that that has flown under the radar a little bit. But uh, if you are into watching the men's bantamweight scrap, seems like... A uh, a compelling matchup of styles, I guess you might say. Well, and when am I not going to want to watch John Lineker go out there and do his John Lineker thing, especially against a guy like T.J. Dillashaw, your boy Tilly Dills? That's just that's got fun written all over it. As far as the question of like, hey, how does it make sense for you know one and two to go out there and fight each other while number five guy fights the champion? I mean, there's plenty of re- uh, space to criticize. You take a guy who hasn't beaten anybody in the you know top five or, or whatever you want to call it. Uh, and you give him a title shot because he does seem like the hot up-and-coming prospect with knockout power and some good highlight clips you can show. Sure, I get that you can criticize that. At the same time, I don't feel like there is enough of a mandate for any one particular other person right now for me to get worked up about it. 
Yeah, especially in the case of Tilly Dills and, and John Lineker, because Dillashaw just lost to Dominic Cruz less than a year ago. So, and their fight was awesome, and I would like to watch it again. But at the same time, I'm not, I'm not going to organize a, a street protest over TJ Dillashaw not just getting to turn around and fight for the title less than a year later. And then we all know the troubles of John Lineker. We do. You, I mean, it seems like the last thing you would want to do uh, is, is give a guy uh, who who misses weight so frequently as John Lineker a, a shot to become the champion because if you're considering these belts to be any more meaningful than a promise ring, uh, you don't want the guy who can't make 135 pounds. Well, I mean, he ought to be able to make 135. I mean, 125 was his big problem, right? I mean, 135. Well, you'd think that, but didn't he miss weight in his last fight yeah, against, well, against John Dodson? I guess I just feel like I I trust him a little more at 135. He's not, you know, he's still a little bit unreliable, but uh, I still, I think that you when you look at these guys and you think about a potential matchup with Dominic Cruz, which is what I think we're all doing, whether we admit it or not, I think you're looking for different style challenges to throw at him. So you're not just looking at the same thing over and over again. And I'm fine with, I mean, you put him up against Cody Garbrandt, who brings with him, you know, the promise of youthful exuberance and knockout power. Cool. John Lineker, the dude who keeps sucking people into playing the John Lineker game, even when they know goddamn good and well that it's a bad idea. I'm into that too. You know, there's a lot of interesting matchups that you can make there to the point where I can I can totally understand the UFC's desire to make a matchup it can sell without worrying too much about the rankings at the, at the moment. Yeah, uh, and in terms of Dillashaw versus Lineker, for Lineker at least, uh, it, it reads a little bit like a trial run almost for a fight with Dominic Cruz if you're going to fight TJ Dillashaw, uh, who we all know Dominic Cruz accused of biting his style while he was away. Uh, if, you, if you're Lineker and you can sucker uh, Dillashaw into playing your Rock'em Sock'em Robots game and you end up defeating his style and knocking him out, maybe there's, you know, maybe that piques interest uh, for how Lineker might do against Dominic Cruz, assuming that Dominic Cruz uh, emerges with the title after this upcoming fight against the youthfully exuberant Cody Garbrandt. Also, the thing, the other thing about Tilly Dills here is that, you know, he's down with the MMA. I was just going to bring that up if you didn't bring it up. And if we look at who else is down with the MMA, you had Tim Kennedy who lost, uh, Donald Cerrone who won, but also won amid, like immediately walking back uh, a great deal of his support for the MMA. Uh, Cain Velasquez, who we'll discuss later on, who had to pull out of that fight. Um, George St. Pierre, who is not really active at the moment, despite his wishes to be active. And now you got Tilly Dills. You know, kind of seems like the Ma people could stand to have Tilly Dills go out there and win one. Yeah, like I saw that they fired up their Twitter account again this week. But, uh, you know, in and around those last fights with with Tim Kennedy and Donald Cerrone in the immediate aftermath of that, things had been pretty quiet over there with the MM AAA uh, to the point where I was starting to feel like it was fair and valid to wonder if that organization was kind of already raising the white flag, you know. Uh, and we talked about this a little bit already on the podcast, just because uh, it started with a with a fairly significant flourish during that conference call that I had organized, and at this point, it, it seems like it has already sort of faded to the background. And that, to me, made these two fights with Dillashaw and 
Cain Velasquez pretty important, or not not necessarily important, but like interesting from an outsider's view to see how they would handle uh, their association with the Ma headed into to UFC 207 because, like you just said, uh, Tim Kennedy lost and therefore was not afforded any kind of platform to talk about whether or not he will carry on with organizing UFC fighters. Dominic Cruz won, but we have no idea, or I mean, not, I'm not Dominic Cruz, but Donald Cerrone won, but we have no idea if he is still even involved, really, uh, with the MMAAA. Now you got Cain Velasquez pulled off this card. That kind of leaves your boy Tilly Dills carrying the flag, you might say. A lot of weight on his narrow shoulders, is yeah, what you'd say. Yeah, so we'll, I think it will be very interesting to see what happens, especially if he beats John Lineker uh, and and is given a post-fight interview in the cage to see if he brings any of that up or if... Because I would think he would stick to putting his focus probably on Dominic Cruz uh, and looking at that title fight. But then, you know, he shows up afterwards. That stuff is bound to come up. Um, yeah, I mean, if we get in and out of UFC 207 without someone in a high-profile way, which I guess leaves tj dillashaw now through the process of elimination if we get in and out of this event without him saying something about the mm triple a what are we to believe what are we to think yeah would that be significant to you it kind of would be to me like if we get out of this event and nobody breathes a word about it that to me would i I guess i just don't think that's really going to be an option unless he manages to skip all media events pre and post fight like ronda rousey because somebody's going to bring it up right somebody will ask him right I mean, I guess it'll be interesting to see what he says. Next we, uh, next question this week comes from uh, Jessica Hudnall, who writes, Sadly, Joe Silva's final card as matchmaker is here. While we all have great memories of the fights he put together and his fantastic reaction faces when shit got real, my favorite thing about tiny Joe Silva, parenthetically, he can fit in your pocket and you can just carry him around town, is his sense of whimsy. When it came to putting fights together, Superman versus Doomsday or Bang versus Koontz are great. But in honor of UFC 207, I have to admit, Joe saved his best work for last. With a hint of malice usually reserved for a Charlie Brenneman booking, <laughs> Joe Silva decided his final act would be to put Johnny Hendricks uh, on an end-of-the-year card, meaning that the Roast Beaston 25-8 would have to be in camp and worried about his weight throughout Thanksgiving and Christmas. That is some next-level evil genius relaxing in an undersea volcano lair type business. <laughs> Please be so kind as to discourse other fun, memorable Joey Silva moments since he's the best Silva in the UFC right now. Coming strong with the listener mail. there at the end. Leg kick TKO there. Uh, I did not think about that, that you're forcing Johnny Hendricks to go through the holidays looking longingly over at the, the plates of his friends and relatives and then looking at the, I imagine, a lone sprig of broccoli just right there in the middle of a sea of white on his own plate and... Just heaving a great sigh. Yeah, indeed. Do you have a standout uh, Joe Silva memories? I would say my two favorite things about Joe Silva were, number one, the anecdote that at this point we're left to believe gave rise to the uh, black hat character of Chael Sonnen, that like when Chael Sonnen was, was a struggling middleweight who had at one point been in the UFC for a while and then uh, was no longer in the UFC, but it had some success on the independent circle that he tried to text message Joe Silva uh, to, to volunteer to take a fight after someone else had dropped out. And the response from Joe Silva essentially was new phone who dis, right? <laughs> yes. And that Chael Sonnen sometimes tells that story now as the moment that he realized 
that he needed to do something extra to make himself memorable and marketable. So in a way, in theory, we have Joe Silva to thank for the rise of the bad guy to yeah. Patrick Sonnen. There you go. Uh, I think I am still most struck by basically the Joe Silva origin story. Right, of yeah. how he came to to work for the USC, like he was a guy like working for like a video game company and just super into martial arts and super into the UFC, and then basically just like called them up and was like, "Here's what I think you should do," and then started like a correspondence with them, and in that way became the job. She said Jeff Blatnick, uh, who was with the UFC at the time, back under the previous ownership, bought him the first computer he ever owned, just because he felt like. Look, you got to have a computer, even though it is the late 90s or whatever, like you still need a computer uh, to do this job. And so kind of started him down this path. I also, I, I, and I know I mentioned this before, but I'm always kind of amazed and impressed when somebody who gets enough money to where they don't need to keep doing their job, especially a job like this, actually follows through and kind of immediately on the plan to be like, well, now I'm just going to go home. <laughs> like, don't need to do this anymore. I'm going to go home and, and hang out and read books. Yeah. And he's actually doing it. Yeah. Because I could see you telling yourself that you would do that and then keep putting it off. Uh, and I don't know. It's, it's, I think that captures a lot about the person that Joe Silva is, that he's not he's not trying to take his money and go to like a, a beach resort somewhere. He's trying to take his money home and stay there. Right. The other thing that I was going to mention about uh, Joe Silva is that he managed to conv convince the UFC to let him telecommute. Right, that's where we're left. We're left after to after some time. Yeah. yeah, he had to go to Vegas for a while. But he went yeah. to Vegas for a while, but then eventually was able to accrue enough clout uh, and have the the kind of relationship with the bosses there that, uh, at least for the last portion of his career, kind of was the UFC matchmaker from his home, I believe, in Virginia somewhere. Uh, which is like I think just speaks to his level of of respect and, as I said, the clout that he had in that company because they don't let just anybody do that. Yeah. Like, well, you know, one interesting thing I'll say is that I was planning on doing a story about people's Joe Silva memories. Oh, really? Um, yeah. And because I got the idea. Jessica I, Hudnall just ruined that for you. Well, Spoiled no. I, I'll tell you what ruined it for me. I I got the first one. I was talking to Joe Lozon. And, you know, when you, when you can talk to some of the few fighters who, like, correspond directly with Joe Silva, then you get, like, better stories. And he had some interesting things to say about just, like, how he and Joe Silva were kind of friendly. And so sometimes... You know, he'd, his phone would ring and he'd see his Joe Silva and he'd be like, shit, like immediately doing a mental <laughs> check in his head. Like, what kind of shape am I am? How far off weight am I? Is he going to ask me to fight like this weekend or is he going to ask me to fight six weeks from now? And like the way your heart rate immediately jumps up. And I thought, man, there's got to be a bunch of these good stories. And so I started calling around and especially when I started talking to a lot of the managers and they were like, this is for a story. And I was like, yeah, I'm, I'm writing a story on this. And they would say... Okay, he's a visionary and he was a very smart guy and a very passionate guy about the business. Off record? Uh, and then they would just talk about like what a pain in their asses he was to deal with, like because of, you know, kind of the, they kind of, they recognized that he kind of had to be that way to do that job and to do it well. Uh, but that they felt like, man, he just never gives you an inch. Uh, he's a real hard ass about this stuff when he stakes out a position on something, you know, he loves to argue. You're not going to just tire him out and make him say, fine, I'll, I'll, I'll give you whatever you want just to get off the phone. Like it's going to be the other way around. And so they did not have a whole lot of super positive on the record or, or on the record things that they really seemed to mean. It was just like, here's a boilerplate quote to leave me alone. Which is kind of amazing 
in and of itself, since Joe Silva, you know, the, the origin story, he came as a fan. It's like, it's doubly amazing to me that he cultivated that kind of reputation, like, while not always positive, as just like kind of being the layman who essentially got into the game like it was uh, the origins of hip hop or something. And he was LL Cool J given his demo to Russell Simmons back in the day where you could just do that, you know, and you might become a famous rapper. Like Joe Silva became the UFC matchmaker in a way that probably doesn't exist today. Like you couldn't just do that now. Email uh, Dana White and be like, hey, I would like to be your matchmaker, right? Yeah, just like, type in dwhite at ufc.com <laughs> and, and hope, hope for, for the, the best. best. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so like kind of that, uh, that, he, that he became the guy that he is from those beginnings is impressive and even more amazing that like he was one of the biggest hard asses in the sport. Yeah. As like a, a guy who just thought that he would be good at it and and therefore was. Last question this week comes from Dwayne Derringer, which I hope to God is his real name. <laughs> he writes... Is he a pro wrestler? <laughs> Dangerous Dwayne Derringer. I know you wrote about it in last week's Breakfast of Champions, but I'd like to hear you, you discourse a little more on Cyborg's quote-unquote potential doping violation with USADA. Is this a sign she's been on that sweet stuff all along? Is this the iceberg and her career the Titanic? is the timing a little bit too suspicious? Like either she turned down those fights, those title fights because she knew she would fail a drug test or she turned down those title fights and then the UFC decided to test the crap out of her. I'm all turned around on this. Well, the last one, I think it's tough to, to make the case for that one because the test she got popped for was early December, right? Yeah, I believe it was December 5th. Yeah. Uh, and... You know, it also, that implies a little bit more collusion between UFC and USADA than at least I think that we've had reason to suspect so far. I think like most of the time when we see instances where we think the UFC would really love to influence USADA if they could, we don't really see that happening. So it would be, it would be surprising to me if it was a situation where the UFC said, all right, you're telling us no, we're going to send USADA after you like we're Nixon and they're the IRS or something. Uh, but as far as what we're hearing now, like out of her camp, where they try, they're, they're immediately downplaying it, like saying, don't worry, it's just a medical thing. You got a doctor's note. It's going to be fine. When the more people start looking into that, like I read some stuff on Bloody Elbow about this, where they were talking about what they claim, you know, that basically they claim that she was using a diuretic or something, but that it was under doctor's care and everything's going to be fine. It gets a little suspicious there because you're supposed to get it cleared before. You do this stuff. Not so much after. It, we have not seen too many instances yet of somebody being able to say to USADA, oh, like, here's my retroactive, like, application for a therapeutic use exemption. And then it ended up being like, okay, it's totally fine. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Seems like something's going to come of this. Indeed. And even though it wasn't necessarily a steroid that we believe she tested positive for at this point, the, the you know, she had already failed one drug test in her past. And now you have this sort of doping violation that at least seems to me like it would be on the level of uh, like a Vitor Belfort or Brock Lesnar uh, doping violation in terms of what it does to public perception and her reputation. Uh, because if MMA fans want to believe a thing and then you give them this kind of ammunition, uh, that story sort of writes itself. Like this is not going to be the kind of thing that is easy for Chris Cyborg to explain away or explain at all, regardless of whether or not, uh, that explanation 
holds water, right? Like this is going to be the, this is a John Jones kind of situation where people have already decided whatever it is and yeah. they will believe that. Uh, and no matter how you explain it to them, they will continue to, they will just use it as ammunition against you. But if we operate under the assumption that she's telling at least most of the truth when she says like, all right, I was under a doctor's care and using right. this stuff at the time, then it does, I think, lend a little bit more credibility to her, to what she was saying before about, Hey, the UFC came to me and said they wanted me to be in this, this 145 pound title fight. But I told them, you know, I wasn't really in the right shape to do that. I, I had... Uh, you know, physical strain left over from the weight cut for the last fight and all that. So, you know, again, it raises the question of would an extra two weeks to get ready really have made the big difference there? But it does help her in a way paint that portrait of like, look, I was kind of a mess because I'd been trying to make 140 pounds. Yeah, I think you're right, but I also think that the people who want to hold this against her will not proceed with that assumption, right? <laughs> you're, you're probably right about that. All right, that's going to do it for Listener Mail this week. If you have a question, a comment, a concern that you would like to air to the podcast in future weeks, you know how to do it. You go to the website, comanevent.com, and click the link in the top right-hand corner of the screen that says email the podcast. That'll get you in touch with us. While you're there, you can sign up for the Breakfast of Champions newsletter. That comes out every Friday morning to catch you up on the news and notes that we miss on all those days when we're not recording the podcast. Stuff always happens. News always breaks. It's short. It's informative. We would like to think it's funny. And if you don't like it, it's really easy to unsubscribe. As for right now, though, we're going to go ahead and get started with round number one. Well, Ben, Ronda Rousey is out, at least out of media obligations leading up to her comeback fight against Amanda Nunes at UFC 207. Uh, I think that there's a million different ways we could go about this, a million different ways we could attack it and talk about it, uh, and all of them, to me, uh, seem more interesting at this point than another discussion about whether Ronda Rousey is going to throw someone on their head and armbar them in 45 seconds or whether or not she will emerge a damaged and broken person and be defeated by Amanda Nunes in this comeback fight. Um, I guess we will start here. G given that media obligations were a thing that Ronda Rousey seemed really good at early on, but that she started to sort of uh, become less and less enamored with over time, uh, finally, I think in the ESPN Ramona Shelburne feature, uh, that came out after the Holly Holm loss, the most recent one, she just kind of said that, uh, uh, the media was a distraction and she wouldn't, didn't really want to do a ton of media. Are you surprised that the UFC is giving her this, uh, perk, I guess you would call it when it's so recently didn't let Conor McGregor do the same thing and, and even forced noted curmudgeon Brock Lesnar to do at least a little bit of media leading up to his UFC appearances. I guess the only reason I'm surprised is because I, if I were the UFC, I might be a little worried about the precedent I'm setting. That you're basically saying somebody is a big enough star that if they say, you know what, I'd really rather not do the media, you say, okay, we'll, like, we'll just not do any of that stuff that we normally require people to do. And in fact, have yanked people out of fight cards for refusing to do. Uh, you got to think that that's going to come up in the future when you deal with other people like Conor McGregor. Uh, and 
you know, but as far as them letting Ronda Rousey call her own shots, giving her a little more leeway than they give other people about that, just in general, I am not surprised, motherfucker. Because, yeah. especially under the WME IMG era, I mean, that's their client, basically. Yeah. Uh, I'm not surprised either. And I think you can pretty easily make the case that Ronda Rousey is one of those people that doesn't need to make her case in front of the, at least the niche MMA media anymore. Um, I could see it being worth her while to sit down on Sports Center or something like that leading up to this fight. But like, she's not gonna, uh, get very much rub, uh, you know, doing the usual suspects interview tour, uh, especially since the, uh, you know, the, the, those pre-fight media interviews that the UFC sets up and then the pre-fight UFC standard press conferences, while I will admit are a little bit more interesting than your average mainstream sports press conference, still aren't all that interesting. And I could see that, you know, Ronda Rousey's not gonna, it's not going to benefit her specifically to take part in those events at this point. But I wonder if it's kind of a risk with the pay-per-view itself, given that, uh, it already felt a little bit to me like this. There hadn't been a ton of promotion leading up to this pay-per-view. And like we discussed last week, this thing is on Friday. Yeah, the, Friday, of, the day before New Year's never been a, a big, huge pay-per-view right, seller for the UFC. Instead of Saturday. So I wonder if it's a little bit of a risk to excuse her from those obligations just in terms of what you're going to do buy rate-wise. Yeah, well, I think like you said, it will deter. It will depend a lot on what else she actually does do. Because, hey, if you show up on SportsCenter, then sure, that's going to get play elsewhere. You know, maybe if you do late-night TV, stuff like that, then you'll still manage to get the word out, right? Like, that's always the challenge on Fight Week is just letting people know there's a fight coming up. Here's who's in it. Here's what it costs. Uh, here's what time you should expect to sit down and buy it. And if you can get her out on some of those mainstream outlets and you know that the MMA media will pick it up from there, like we don't, we won't even be mad that you just don't show up <laughs> to these other press conferences and media days and stuff that, uh, everybody goes there, like depending on being able to get some content out of. They'll just run something off the Sports Center interview, off of a Conan interview or something like that. Uh, it would be, in a way, maybe kind of cool if the MMA media was like, so you're telling us that you want us to go to this press conference and you're also telling us that the main event fighters aren't going to be there. Maybe we'll stay home. Right. Like maybe we'll do something right. else with our time just because that does kind of, it, you know, definitely takes you for granted uh, as the media members trying to get stories out about this event. But I I still I wonder how much of the shine has rubbed off of Ronda Rousey for a lot of the mainstream because when you take a loss like she did and then you disappear for as long as she did, you know, it, like you point to that that Conor McGregor rematch where he took a big loss where it seemed like okay the brand might have might have to take a hit here after that loss against Nate Diaz, but then he turns right around and goes right after that rematch again like the iron never cools down it's still hot for him uh, and so then when he strikes it again. They do huge pay-per-view numbers. And Ronda Rousey has done like kind of the opposite approach in every single way. I got to think that there's going to be a serious dip here. Yeah, I don't really know for sure. And I, I think it was striking to see the two people who were the UFC's biggest stars both lose, you know, in such quick succession and then both handle it so differently, uh, you know, on the back end. It seemed like, like you said, Conor handled it really well and Ronda Rousey handled it her loss as poorly as anyone we've ever seen in any sport kind of like to be uh you know sky high dominant pr prime years of her career champion to then just completely disappearing 
off the face of the earth after this is, getting. This is why she's not doing it because you because people like you you're betraying her right now. Chad. I, yeah, I you're mean, I guess so. Like I, I was, I was, as I've said on this show before, shocked by the the glee with which a lot of people reacted to the Ronda Rousey knockout. Uh, but at the same time, the 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 following year did kind of make it clear, at least to me. That, that, that loss did affect her negatively and she did need to take that time to, to recuperate. Uh, which I'm actually okay with. Like, if that's what she feels like she needs to do as an athlete, uh, the, like, the fact that she is skipping out on, on media obligations leading up to this particular fight kind of disappoints me more as a fan than anything else because as a reporter, I kind of, you know, I know the deal with these pre-fight media stuff. You're not, you usually don't get anything particularly illuminating. Everyone's kind of on autopilot regurgitating these, uh, pre, you know, pre, uh, composed answers to a lot of stock questions. But in this particular fight, and this, you know, this might be by design from Ronda Rousey's people, a big storyline for UFC 207 is her psychological Right. And physical well-being, like how she was able to rebound that from that loss to Holly Holm and come back. So if ever there was pre-fight media stuff that I was going to be interested in, it would be Ronda Rousey before UFC 207. Right. And that also, though, feels like a big reason why she's not doing it, right? For sure. It's yeah. because she doesn't want to sit there and have a bunch of us internet journalists asking her to relive that loss and also explain her actions after it. Like she, she doesn't want, she clearly does not want to sit through that. Now, while I can't really, uh, blame her for feeling like that would be an unpleasant experience to go through, uh, in the days leading up to the fight, it also, though, does seem like, you know, a, a weird dodge. And like you're, you're, you're telling your opponent something there too, I think, like that, and clearly Amanda Nunes has decided that what it tells her is that Ronda Rousey's mental state is still fragile heading into this fight. That she, if she, if she doesn't feel like she can sit there and answer some questions for an hour, then, you know, how is she feeling about her chances to go back in there in this kind of high pressure situation and get that belt back? So I can understand why Amanda Nunes would be taking that approach to it. I wonder if you're Amanda Nunes though, if a part of you isn't just like, Son of a bitch. Like, this is my chance to go out there with the belt, show up at the press conference, sla smack that heavy-ass belt down on the table, sit there and, you know, enjoy the kind of reception as the champion. And because Ronda Rousey has decided she doesn't want to do it, you basically, you're, that moment for you in the, the spotlight before the fight doesn't really happen. Yeah, Amanda Nunes is in a, is a very weird position here. Uh, and especially as the person who won the main event of UFC 200 earlier this year and now rolls into the main event of UFC 207 to fight Ronda Rousey, one of the biggest stars this sport has ever produced. And she's the champion. Like this should be like the crowning moment of her career, especially if she wins. And I would say especially if she gets a cut of the pay-per-view money exactly. for this. Yeah. If you're Amanda Nunes, <clears throat> I wouldn't be surprised to, 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 if you felt like you were getting a raw deal here, like to us, we can sit on our podcast and banter about whether or not the buy rate will suffer because of this. If you're Amanda Nunes, that's taking money right out of your pocket. Yeah. I was thinking if she is getting a cut of the pay-per-views, that's a point when I might as well, if I were her, look over at Ronda Rousey and say, girl, you need to get to a press conference. We got to sell this damn thing. Like I, you know, I'm not going to be rolling out of here in a Bentley if, you know, you just kind of half-ass it. So 
I, you know, I can understand that from from that perspective. I think the weird thing about it is that the people who are going to be most annoyed about Ronda Rousey skipping out on media stuff are going to be the MMA media people and the people, the hardcore fans kind of in the bubble. And but for them, the fact that she's skipping it itself becomes enough of a conversation topic and enough yeah. of a story that it it kind of all evens out. Like you're not really going to lose the people who seem like they would care the most. Right. It seems like the real damage is going to be done that you just don't you maybe don't get the message out loud enough and effectively enough and consistently enough to reach the other people who might have considered like making a borderline impulsive decision on a Friday night like oh Ronda Rousey I've heard of her okay sure I'm not doing anything maybe I'll buy that fight and in addition to that in our eyes you know the hardcore people and the the journalists and stuff like that this decision will necessarily be colored in retrospect by whether or not she wins or loses right if she wins then maybe it's a genius move right maybe she really buckled down and focused on this comeback fight and took her training so unbelievably seriously that she didn't even have time to show up at this press conference and wow what a great strategic move by Ronda Rousey and then if she loses it's like well she was too emotionally and mentally weak to sit there and do it and we should have known all along etc cetera, etc cetera, etc cetera. uh so if you're Ronda Rousey maybe it's just a gamble that you're going to win and yeah. then if you do win you can go to the post-fight press conference and probably all is forgiven and forgotten at that point. Right? Yeah. Well, I also, I wonder, because it's easier to make that case of like, hey, I had to focus up on the training. Like what Conor McGregor tried to make unsuccessfully in terms of, or at least in the UFC's eyes when he said like, look, I don't want to be flying around uh, eight weeks before the fight doing a bunch of radio interviews where they ask me the same questions and everything, but I got to give the answers for every single media market and fly all over the country and be away from my gym just to do the promotion kind of stuff that I'm not really paid for beyond a per diem. You know, it's just that I'm hoping to put money in the bank for later. And when you do it on fight week, though, the preparation ought to be already done. Sure. It's not like that hour of the press conference is taken away from some super hard work you were going to be doing in the gym like three days before the fight. Yeah. So that is a little bit of a different situation. All right, well, let's do Are You Fucking Kidding Me, Ben? And then we will move on to round uh, number two. Ben, this week, since we just talked about him, uh, my Are You Fucking Kidding Me has to go out to Conor McGregor, uh, a guy who during the past couple weeks we've discovered uh, is, a, is the sort of dude who will sit at a press conference and announce his protracted, ab protracted absence from, from MMA that he's going to take some time off and maybe this was just our assumption, but to be away from the limelight a little bit while he becomes a father, and then he will immediately turn around and start posting pictures of his package on social media. Just him in a skin-tight pair of briefs, maybe standing in front of a luxury car. Are you fucking kidding me, Conor McGregor? You tell us you're going to take some time off, and then two weeks later, you're in your underwear on my Twitter timeline? Come on, man. Are you fucking kidding me? Fucking kidding me? My Are You Fucking Kidding Me, Chad, has to go out to the go-horse, Fabricio Verdum. You see his most recent his comments, I believe, to MMA Fighting, where he talks about Junior Dos Santos, who claimed that Verdum turned down a fight with him. Verdum says it's not the case. Uh, and then he issues this quote. Some people think he's jealous because I became champion beating his dad, Cain Velasquez. But I don't think that's the case. I think he didn't come out of the closet yet. I don't have anything against homosexuals, but Sagano needs to get out of the closet. He must have something because he won't forget me. I already told him I'm married. Nothing against gays, but everyone does their own thing. 
You know, wow. we've already talked before about how it would be awesome if MMA fighters would just stop uh, using the you're gay as their go-to insults right. uh, against their opponents. But I think what's even more striking here is that it makes you sound like your trash talk is on the level of a junior high school boy. Yes. Like, why are you so obsessed with me? Is it because you love me? You must be in love with me. I'm sorry, man. I'm not in. I don't, I don't swing that way. Come on, man. You're, you're damn near 40 years old, Fabricio Verdu. You gotta come up with something better than this. This is, this is, even on like the eighth grade bus ride home, there would be some people rolling their eyes and thinking, I don't know, man. That wasn't so great. That wasn't such a great comeback there. Fucking kidding me? You're fucking kidding me. Maybe we know now why he would just make that face before. See, I would have preferred if this, if if at this point that quote was cut out and there just in brackets it said, Verdu makes that face. And then we'd all know, oh yeah, no, I can picture the face he's making. Uh, the totality of that quote being about, uh, accusing Junior Dos Santos of being a closet homosexual makes me wonder if there was a mistranslation there when Verdum says, I beat his dad, Cain Velasquez. Seems like maybe he might have been going for something else. Not sure. <laughs> okay. Anyway, that's going to do it for round number one. We'll be right back with round number two. Horse Chad, as you know, he was supposed to fight Junior Dos Santos's father, uh, Cain Velasquez, at UFC 207. And then Cain Velasquez, in the lead up to this fight, started talking about how he had himself a pile of trash back. Uh, was headed for surgery, win or lose, right after this fight. Was getting through the pain with uh, CBD, uh, some kind of weird next level marijuana shit that I don't even really know about. Uh, the kids these days, you know, they're the cool ones. They don't even smoke marijuana anymore. They just they they look at it and it gets in their system somehow. Uh, but he came out to to talk to ESPN about this and basically laid it all on the table, saying how bad his his back was and how the medical marijuana situation had really helped him deal with it. Uh, and we all kind of raised an eyebrow at the time and said, yeah. you know what, that seems like a strange move right before a fight. And apparently the Nevada State Athletic Commission also thought there were some strange moves going on before this fight because they said, medically unfit to fight, now it's off. Is Does this come down to if Cain Velasquez doesn't give that interview or at least doesn't say that in that interview, this fight still goes ahead? And follow-up, would that be preferable if he is actually medically unfit to fight? Boy, I mean, you got to think that they would have let him fight, right? Just because we were so close to fight time, it seemed like at least he believed he'd already been medically cleared, I think, and and was it was all systems go into the fight. Uh, congratulations, by by the way, to all the people on Twitter making those THC level Cain Velasquez jokes. Those are magnifique. Uh, <laughs> and you know what? I got to say, our guy Brett Okamoto did not help Cain Velasquez's cause here. The way he wrote this uh, ESPN.com story that came out in December. 21st, where the first two paragraphs say, 
Nine days from now, Cain Velasquez will face Fabricio Verdum in a three-round heavyweight fight at UFC 207 in Las Vegas. That in itself is amazing, considering Velasquez is currently having difficulty standing upright any longer than 10 minutes because of the pain in his lower back. Yeah, well, I don't blame Brett no, there. No. You give me that as a, and I, I mean, that's, that's a, good a good lead right that's, there. That's a good lead. But I read that and I go, uh-oh, you know, Carl <laughs> Lewis singing the national anthem time right there. Uh-oh. So I don't think any of us were surprised really when, uh, when the uh, the NAC decided that it it, it was going to circle back and and not uh, okay Cain Velasquez's fight uh, against Fabricio Verdum, uh, and this does frankly seem like the kind of situation where and I, and like I don't know about answering the part of your question where you said is it preferable to have Cain Velasquez in or out of this fight? I think that that you know comes down to who you are and what your perspective is. Uh, but, but at the same time, I don't think anybody can really be surprised that they pulled him out of this thing after, after, after the high profile, uh, admission. And it it's, does in fact seem like a case of maybe if you just hadn't said that, you'd be cashing them checks. Yeah. Well, and in very typical MMA fashion, the way it happened was that Brett Akamoto on Twitter said that his sources were telling him Kane was going to be pulled from the fight. Kane immediately jumps on Twitter and says, not from what I heard. I just got cleared by the doctor. I think everything's fine. Uh, and then it turns out basically we get to watch on Twitter as Kane Velasquez finds out in real time uh, where he goes from being certain the fight's going to happen to being markedly less certain to being, oh, man, the fight's not going to happen. Uh, I guess we couldn't just tell him before the world knows that he's not going to be able to fight there. And... I mean, I guess the it's hard to know because it's hard to know exactly how bad his injury was. Like, you know, you hear stuff like he's having trouble standing up. That doesn't sound good. You know, the bone spurs in his back, like affecting his nerves down his leg. Uh, you know, that's as a person who had discus issues in his neck affecting nerves down at my arm. I can tell you how that that seems like the, the kind of thing that can really mess with you. And at the same time, though, I could I'm not that surprised that Cain Velasquez told himself. You know what? I'll use a little medical marijuana for the pain, uh, basically, because I don't have to deal with prescription painkillers. I'll go through with the fight. I'll, I'll push through it, basically, get through it on toughness and ability, and then I'll have the surgery and deal with it afterwards. Like, that seems like kinda, the, the kind of thinking that you could see would make sense from his perspective. But uh, then again, that's why the Athletic Commission theoretically is there. Like, that's one of the reasons that they're there, is to step in and say, like, you know, we, we recognize that this is a dangerous situation, even if the fighter himself tells himself that he's willing to take that risk. Uh, we think it's it's a bad idea. It's too dangerous a situation. Like that's in theory what you want an athletic commission to be doing. And yet, when it, we actually see it happening, all it seems MMA fans come away with is Kane should have kept his mouth shut. Yeah, uh, and I think you know we have to assume that this medical issue, the sciatica resulting from the bone spurs, is unbelievably painful. If it is going to be this kind of problem for a guy that we know is as tough as Cain Velasquez, like if we're any less of a of a, a problem, I we we would obviously just never hear of it. Uh, and yeah, I don't I don't think it's fair. Like even though I even though we say like this does seem like a a, a, a situation where if he had just not said this, maybe he would get to fight. I don't want to uh, you know drag Cain Velasquez through the mud that much because I think a lot of what he is doing and saying here. Uh, is is logical and and like the right move for him. 
Uh, in fact, I'll just read this quote that he gave Brett in this initial story where he says, it, meaning the uh, CBD, is the only thing that allows me to still train uh, and I'm not taking a harmful painkiller into my body that I'll later become addicted to. I don't know how everyone is going to feel about me saying this, but this is just one of the hard facts we as fighters have to go through. In the past, in the NFL, players have gotten addicted to painkillers. I don't want to be an addict of some sort. So, like, the actual use of the uh, of the CBD cannabinoid, nailed it. Yep. Right? Uh, totally sound like a hip yeah. pot user. Can I, can I score a litter grass? Hey, fellow kids. Uh, I mean, the, the, the thought process for him using the medical marijuana instead of using painkillers seems completely reasonable and something that, frankly, I support. Yeah. The start, the stuff when he's talking about it's the only thing that allows me to train nine days before his fight or whatever is the part where you wince a little bit, uh, and maybe, and maybe feel a little bad for him since he clearly wants to have the fight. Well, and that though made me wonder why he was talking about it because he doesn't seem like the kind of guy who is just going to let his mouth run and get himself into trouble. Yeah, like, that's, this is a weird thing to have happen to Cain Velasquez, a guy who is notorious for being so vanilla and kind of boring during interviews that like a lot of times people will just pass on interviews with the guy, right? Yeah, well, he's yeah, that's the thing. It makes me think that this was not just a slip up where he opened up too much and uh, then realized later, oh, like, damn it. Damn it, Kane, you should have kept your cards close to the vest. Why are you always, like, just an emotional open book with these people? Like, that's not really his M.O. So it seems like maybe it must have been a a conscious decision beforehand to, like, to to put this out there. And I my thoughts at first, before he was pulled out of the fight, were, you know, he has that reputation of getting hurt and pulling out of fights and, and you know, just being too hurt to fight. He knew he's hurt. He knew he's going to go in there hurt. You don't. You don't want to be the guy standing up there if you lose and saying, I don't want to make any excuses, but here's my excuse. You also, you maybe want to counteract people's image of you as a guy who just pulls out whenever something goes wrong. Maybe you want people to know, hey, I'm hurt and I'm doing the damn thing anyway, so shut up. Um, maybe if you're worried about how the medical marijuana thing is going to go over, he says, you know, it's cool out of competition and he plans to stop use like a week before or something. Uh, but if you're, if you're unsure, about whether that's going to be fine with USADA and the Nevada Commission and that maybe it might pop up in a drug test later and you want to kind of lay the groundwork so that people they won't just hear Cain Velasquez hit with potential anti-doping violation and immediately assume that you're on roids. Maybe like some of that was at work here because otherwise it's hard to imagine Cain Velasquez just kind of accidentally yeah. letting this stuff go. Yeah, that's a good point and not something that I had thought of before. And, and I think that it's possible that you're right, that he did kind of want to float it out there that he was hurt but was going to go ahead and go through with this fight uh, anyway. Uh, either that or like maybe it's a situation where he felt like he didn't want to be boring in interviews anymore. Maybe he wanted to open up a little bit more and it just so happens. One of the most that, interesting like, interviews I've ever seen with him. Yeah, and it just so happens that this is what comes out and this is what happens. So... Uh, so you're saying the next time somebody interviews Cain Velasquez, expect a lot of it is what it is? <laughs> I mean, I, Good I Lord don't Willen. think he's going to take a lot of positive uh, lessons from this <laughs> situation, right? Earlier when we talked about how we were going to learn a valuable lesson at the end of the show? Yeah. Maybe we just did. I don't know. See, here's where you'd like to be able to say that you were misquoted. You know, that you were, that it was a translation issue. Uh, m- maybe you you thought you and your buddy Brett were just knocking back a... A few CBDs 
Uh, that's how it works, right? You just get a few CBDs. Yep, I'm pretty sure, right? Uh-huh. Yeah. Um, and you thought you were just off the record. The next thing you know, you're on ESPN talking about how you can't stand up. Yeah. Uh, well, that's gonna do it for round two. No, no, Kane Velasquez this week at uh, UFC 207. Uh, we're gonna go ahead and get started with round number three right now. sit here today on monday uh the day after christmas dominic cruz the ufc's men's bantamweight champion is going off at it looks like about a two to one favorite over cody garbrandt on saturday in their co-main event fight uh are you surprised by that line at all it looks like garbrandt is going off at about plus 180 uh is that more competitive than you thought it would be or about right or did you expect dominic cruz to be uh, a bigger favorite that sounds about right to me because I guess it's hard to feel like you know exactly what all Cody Garbrandt is capable of. You know he can hit hard. You know he can knock people out. and But it still seems like since he hasn't been tested against those top guys yet, there's a lot of unknowns there. Um, for me, though, I really – I have yet to see Dominic Cruz go in there and do anything dumb. Like ever. You know, like ever go in there and just – get sucked into playing a game he shouldn't play or uh, screw around and get too overeager or, or, you know, get let his ego get in the way and, and get into some kind of slugfest. His style and his consistency and commitment to it, you know, you think on paper that if he goes out there and he does what he can do, he kind of dances around Cody Garbrandt all night and never really has to worry too much about the power. Um, but then, like we always like to say, when you're throwing those throwing them bungalows and the small gloves, I guess you only need to get lucky once. Yeah, this is going to be one of those fights where, you know, as long as it doesn't end quickly and uh, in the first round, where I think Cody Garbrandt is going to have that, be able to build that tension of the knockout artist, where you watch these kind of uh, fights in MMA where they wear the, the small gloves. And even when the guy in the role of Dominic Cruz in this particular fight is winning and running circles around the other guy and obviously building uh, a huge advantage on the scorecards. You always have this sort of like sense of foreboding in your stomach where it's like all it would take is Garbrandt to punch him one time and maybe Dominic Cruz gets knocked out. Uh, And in that sense, it's kind of like uh, a perfect matchup of styles and, and, despite the fact that Cruz is such a uh, heavy favorite at two to one, like kind of an unpredictable matchup of styles, because if you believe that Garbrandt has that knockout power, that all he has to do is, is touch Dominic Cruz once uh, and he might win this thing. That makes this, this uh, very intriguing to me to see if Dominic Cruz can go out there and kind of like pen the perfect uh, game plan and tactical performance as, as he's done throughout his career. Well, yeah. And you know, I talked to Dominic Cruz uh, late last week, and I got a story coming out on it tomorrow. It was, you know, we talked before about how much we hate doing those 10, 15-minute phone or interviews with guys when they are having to do, you know, 
six or seven of them in a row and they are not that thrilled to talk to you. But Dominic Cruz is such an interesting guy to talk to yeah. that I, I didn't want to turn that one down. And he ended up being a great interview. He's one of those few people you feel like when you're asking him a question, he is actually thinking about it uh, before he just gives like kind of a rote answer. But one of the things that he was saying was basically he felt like his he was so far ahead of the game with a lot of the stuff he's doing that he thinks that people just kind of aren't capable of seeing it right now. Uh, that he thinks even guys like Cody Garbrandt kind of tell themselves, like, okay, he's just he's just dancing around, you know, hitting with those quick little nothing shots and then darting out of there. Like, he, it's not really that tough to figure out. I'll just, uh, you know, block him down somewhere, walk walk him into the cage, and then land a big haymaker, call it a night. And he he's basically like, I I'm doing something so far different than that that these guys are not able to understand why they're not able to understand it. Hmm. Uh, and, you know, his his point was when I asked him about Cody Garbrandt's power, like, do you allow yourself to consider the possibility that that guy catches you once and the next thing you know, you're waking up looking at the lights? Like, you have to acknowledge that that's possible, right? And basically he said, like, he did acknowledge that it was possible, that that's why he tries to take as few punches as possible from anybody in any single fight. Uh, but... He also seemed to think that, like, Cody Garbrandt himself does not realize all the things he doesn't know yet. Uh, which, you know, you can see why, as the kind of elder statesman in this situation, Dominic Cruz would take that viewpoint. That basically, yeah, he thinks Cody Garbrandt probably really does believe all the stuff he's saying, but only because he has the benefit of his own inexperience. Yeah, and, you know, just hearkening back to the listener mail segment on this show, it is uh, kind of... I don't want to say breathtaking, but it's kind of uh, uh, interesting to just look at Cody Garbrandt's UFC career. He's 10 to no overall as a professional, but he's still only 25 years old. And you look at this list of previous opponents in the octagon, uh, Marcus Brimage, Henry Briones, Augusto Mendez, Thomas Almeida, and Takeo Mizugaki. And you think to yourself, wow, then they're going to, this guy's going to fight Dominic Cruz next. Really? Like that's, that's a heck of a leap up in competition, even if the last three of them were impressive first round knockouts. So you could see how Dominic Cruz would believe that, that this kid, this 25 year old rookie, basically Cody Garbrandt doesn't even know enough to know what he doesn't know. Uh, and I guess we will find out on Saturday if he is right to know that we, we are right to believe that we know that uh, he metaphorically ran circles around Cody Garbrandt, uh, when they got together for that face-to-face -face interview at the UFC on Fox show a couple of weeks ago. Uh, and you could see, I think also Dominic Cruz, you can understand if he comes into this thing with that kind of confidence, like this person that I'm fighting is not on my level, either uh, emotionally, mentally, or in terms of what we are physically going to do to each other in the cage. Yeah. Well, and I guess I, but that's also a path to, uh, being surprised to waking up and seeing those lights. Yeah. Right? Well, and I feel like it, it'll be a, one of those situations where we rewrite our expectations of it, depending on how it goes. Because I think if Dominic Cruz goes out there and does his Dominic Cruz thing for five rounds and kind of schools Cody Garbrandt that way, then I think that's what will come out of it is everybody saying, well, Cody Garbrandt wasn't ready for that yet. Like he, he's a legit talent, but he's not quite there yet. He got moved up too quickly and took on a guy like Dominic Cruz when he wasn't ready. And... I th I wonder though if that does kind of Dominic Cruz a disservice because it wasn't that long ago when we were talking about 
hey, he, his comeback itself seemed improbable. And then to come back and still be at the level he's at, uh, it kind of seemed like we were watching a guy painting a masterpiece there. And this seems like one of those fights where, you know, if you go out there and you get knocked out, it's a disaster for you. If you go out there and you run circles around Cody Garbrandt, uh, then people might chalk it up more to Garbrandt not being where he was supposed to be yet more than Dominic Cruz just being the most dominant and untouchable bantamweight fighter of all time. Yeah, not a lot of people talking about Dominic Cruz for fighter of the year that I have heard at least so far. Uh, and and that discussion in and of itself is Pandora's box, right? Uh, but at the same time, if he goes out there and beats uh, Cody Garbrandt, he'll have three wins this year uh, in his first year back in competition since his he beat Takeya Mizugaki uh, in September of 2014. You know, a win over TJ Dillashaw, a win over Uriah Faber, and then a win over Cody Garbrandt uh, would make 2016 a pretty good one, frankly, for Dominic Cruz. So uh, we will have to see how that plays out, I guess. Um, do you want to do just saying stuff? Yeah. And then we'll get out of here for this week. Ben, what's your just saying stuff for this week? Well, Chad, I'm just saying... We talked a lot about UFC 207, naturally, going down on Friday night. What we didn't talk about is what's going on on New Year's Eve over there in the magical land of Japan. Uh-huh. I think you know what I'm talking about. I know what you're talking about. Ryzen Open Weight Grand Prix. This one, maybe it's, it's taken a few hits as far as the original lineup, especially if you go, if you look at the, like, ShareDog uh, page for this event... Uh, what you see in the main event is unknown fighter versus unknown fighter. Uh, and then later on, a few more unknown fighters sprinkled in down there. Um, but you do still have some stuff going on in this open weight Grand Prix. For instance, did you know that Heath Herring is in this mug? Oh, no, get out of here. Yeah. Who's he fighting? He's, he's a crazy he's... horse? <laughs> now, you, you, well, are you going to ask he... if he, the Texas crazy horse is yes, going to fight he is. Kid Chaos the crazy horse? Well, then, now, see, that would be some Joe Silva-style matchmaking right yeah. there. Well, match those two guys' nicknames. The out. other crazy horse is also on this card, but not against Heath Herring. He's now fighting uh, Amir Aliakbara. Uh, but your boy Baruto in the house. Baruto. I mean, that's worth showing up. For I'm watching a hey, Russian internet stream at like four in the morning right there. Who's Baruto beating on this thing? Uh, Tiyoshi Kosaka. TK? <laughs> TK. Oh, wow, man. Put that in the bank for me. Yeah, Baruto. looks like there's going to be a little bit of a size difference there. Also, you got Crow Cop versus King Mo up in there. Interesting. Wow. A lot to process. I'm just yeah, saying. I'm just... We, we were letting this one fly under the radar when there was a lot of weird shit that could go on over there. A lot of ways for it to end in a just total clusterfuck that would be kind of entertaining. And uh, I'm just saying I'm going to set an alarm to wake myself up and remind myself to get excited for this. Because you don't want to miss some weird shit like this. Just saying. Just saying. Ben, did you see the ratings from the UFC 206 Christmas Eve special that the fight company put on Fox this past weekend? Why don't you hit me with the ratings? 4.7 million average. This thing pretty much killed in that time slot. Beat out It's a Wonderful Life huh. over on NBC. Beat out the Oprah Winfrey special on no. CBS. Get out of here. And it beat out something called Disney Prep and Landing on ABC, which mm -hmm. came in at last place at 1.88 million. That does not surprise me that that was last place. So I guess this week, I'm just saying, after being forced to spend an entire day with their families, turns out Americans are ready to watch people punch each other in the face. 
I'm just saying. Just saying. That is going to do it for this week's co-main event podcast. We will be back next week to break down all the stuff that happens at UFC 207 and, frankly, in the Ryzen Fight Federation, where I expect we will be breaking down another enormous win for Baruto. Baruto. As for right now, though, we are done. We are through. We are out. Do you think maybe what the high ratings tells us is that when you actually put the pay-per-view quality fights on network TV, it does considerably better than when you put whatever you feel like are your leftovers? I mean, you think we're running the test here? Uh, 2018 and beyond? If you were one of those networks,